Ethical capitalism is where the amount that I require for exchanging, for turning my life energy, my, ex my expertise into money through the things that I sell, the amount of money that I charge is a right match for the amount of money that you are, have converted portions of your life energy into in order to utilize. When there's a, a match between those two things, we've got a reason to engage with each other. If I'm selling something for a price that's greater than is integrous for you to purchase it for, there's no harm and no shame and no fault on either side. You get to look for a resource that matches what you need that's being sold at a price you want to pay for it that that's integrous for the amount of life energy you have to invest in order to get that amount of money available to you through what you're paid uh, so when we understand money and capitalism in that way it opens the door to neutralizing the whole sales process because we're not trying to force anyone to do anything we're serving people by helping them understand whether there's a right match between what they need and what they're willing to pay and what we provide and what we are charging for it the move entrepreneur evolved podcast get on it and we are back with the Moved Entrepreneur Evolved podcast. I'm excited to have David Bruder here. And we did have a conversation a second ago, and he said, you know, he also sometimes go by doctor, but he seemed like a really incredible guy, and he just liked to stay modest, and I respect that. Um, it's really good to meet you. You're the CEO of Integrity Culture Systems, and I'm excited to have you on here. Good to see you, David. Oh, it's a pleasure to be with you, Jason. I've been looking forward to talking with you. I'm excited that you came on. I'm sure you're going to help a lot of people. So I'm going to dive right into your here. Uh, you got uh, a lot of really cool stuff. I know that uh, some of the things that you've done in the past and the things you still do, it's keynotes, trainings, consultings. And the main one was making integrity profitable. And I thought that that was a real powerful statement. Um, leaders elevated, society's healthy. Uh, this falls in line with a lot of things that I believe as well. So I'm excited about learning a little bit of where you come from and the stuff that you've done in the past and why you kind of came up with it. So I immediately had a question for you on integrity. And um, in business, uh, many times um, you find that you go out and you do business and you have these uh, integrities and you have morals and you have ethics and you have all those things. And my question to you is, um, what does integrity mean when it comes to culturals, uh, cultures and demographics that you found that maybe there's controversial issues um, or maybe there's barriers that need to be broken? What's your thought pattern on that type of question? Oh, my. That's a great first question, and we could probably spend the whole time just talking about that. Uh, the in, in a business setting, what we're looking at with integrity at the kind of the high level of it is an alignment among the the purpose of the business the true value that the business provides to those it serves primarily and through that to society along with the role that each person is playing so that they're clear 
about the true value they provide to the team that they're on if they're inside a team in, in the business and the true value that they and their team provide to the business's ability to provide its true value to those it serves. And then the uh, kind of foundational level of integrity is where each person in a company is really clear about the portions of their own personal impact mission that they get to express through the role that they fill in providing their true value to the business's true value. I call that vertical integrity in a business. Okay. And when that is explicit and aligned, everyone works well together and people feel fulfilled and the customer feels delighted when there's misalignment or if any one or more of those three dimensions of of vertical integrity are not fully clear to people then we end up having problems with employee engagement levels and productivity levels and collaboration deficits and things along those lines and of course customer service goes out the window too. customer you know, experience that's I just thought about that um, you know being leadership and and being in positions and things uh, the leader has a sense of integrity right and sometimes you don't know what you, you, it might be said but many times it's what our actions are in those levels as a leader trying to teach integrity there's a few things that come to mind and I'm only going to use this um, in, in maybe a customer service if I was at a uh, you know, I'm at a, um, a department store just because this is like, uh, you know, right in front of you. But now that we're in businesses that kind of do the same, but people are the same. And so you have a, you have a team meeting and you say, look, this is what we, this is our integrity. Like this is, we, we, we will fulfill this, you know, the customer is always right. You know, these are the type of things that come up that we're going to hold our integrity. At what point do you find that in business that, there's times where the, the customer is really challenging that integrity. How do you hold the line if really this person's trying to rip you off? Because I think integrity many times is a thin line of the nice guy finishes last. There could be a right. line there that could be crossed. And so it's always an interesting conversation for me because many times when I've decided to get more shrewd, sometimes I have more success. And so I think that there's this, place in integrity that's where's that line where you kind of got to draw because people will pull from you they will take everything from you if you don't have some time of life so how do you position leaders to kind of handle that yeah great great question and of course a very common dilemma and to start responding to that question i want to disavow the uh, delusion that the customer is always right it's not about whether the customer is right or wrong. Business is always about, uh, if it's, if it's non-manipulative business, you know, if it's, if it's responsible and ethical and integrious business, it's always about finding the intersection between what the company most loves to deliver and how they most love to, del to deliver it and what the customer is looking for. It's all about matchmaking. The customer mm -hmm. is never wrong about what they're looking for. They may be needing additional education so that they can get a clearer picture of what they're actually looking for. That sometimes 
is needed. But the customer is never wrong about their what they're looking for, and the company is never wrong about who they want to serve and the profiles, the psychographics of the people that they want to serve. The only question is whether there is a right match between those two things. When the bat match is there, the integrious thing to do is to collaborate, is to engage with each other. When that match is not there, there is a mismatch and it's nobody's fault. It's just not a right match. That to me is integrity in business, not this notion that the customer is always right. I uh, kind of interested in uh, we've been going through in my company and I've been dissecting, you know, where are these different levels of, of what happens? And it, it really, if you boil it down, it comes to marketing, sales, right? Transition of how you get them into your department. And then you have fulfillment. So you have all three of these and each one of them hold these integrity emotions, right? And I find that people, when they that marketing, they get caught up. There's an integrity thing of thinking that you're lying. When it comes to, you know, the sales position, I find like how when I'm stopping, right? And, and I teach sales and things like that. But when I when when I stop and I do the moment of what manipulation and go, hey, here is the price, and you're taught what? Be quiet, right? And so there is a, a, a sense of manipulation that's there that if you look at it on a logical standpoint and say, why would you do that to a human? And then when it comes to fulfillment, you know, you, you have so many different people that you're trying to kind of at different positions of their lives, trying to go through your fulfillment funnel. So how do you uphold the, uh, the in the business to say that each one of these are, you know, integrity, you always have you know, the human resources is always mad at the sales guy or the human, the, the accounting department is always mad at the sales guy because they got to write their check, right? Because they're like, I hate it. Why does he make so much money? So where does integrity come in, in marketing? You know, where do you see this shift in sales? And then where do you see the shift in, in fulfillment? Right. Uh, let me add a fourth dimension because there, there is something after fulfillment, which is advocacy. Mm, I like that. Okay, so I, I view the hero's journey that a customer goes through as having those four components. The first component is where they get curious enough to want to learn about whatever it is that you're wanting to let them know about. And that's uh, that process of generating curiosity by the right people is what marketing is for. The part of the journey where they're moving toward a yes or a no on purchasing is where they get to understand what the underlying sources of the challenges that they're aware of having or the aspirations that they're aware that they're not achieving, what the underlying causes of those difficulties are and what would be wise for them to be looking for by way of a solution so that they then by at that point in the in the um, warm-up process in that bridge between marketing and sales they get to a point where they want to know oh do you provide that mm. and when they are at the point where they're wanting to know if you provide what you've mapped out for them around root causes and what to look for in the way of a solution, they are in the process of selling themselves. We don't have to sell them on anything. 
the the idea that we close people, I think, is a misnomer in integrity-based business. In integrity-based business, a customer or a client sells themselves. They close themselves. And one of the big challenges is do we demonstrate from a marketing point of view are we able to demonstrate to the right kind of potential buyer are we able to under uh, demonstrate that we understand what they think they're struggling with so well that their reaction is how did they get inside my head and how did they articulate what i'm struggling with even more effectively than i knew how to put it into words that's that's when that's done effectively that is uh that is integrious marketing mm -hmm. integrious selling there are two versions of selling most people don't know this but there is the classic version of selling that most all of us who value self-responsibility and social responsibility recoil at which is the madison avenue version of selling the technical term for which was coined a hundred years ago by the father of modern public relations whose name was edward bernays he called it manufactured consent oh, it's, uh, well oh, oh, oh that's good i'm gonna have to pull you back so so manufactured consent and and I'm going to yes. follow up with something after this. I think it's quite interesting. So I like that. So manufactured consent is positioning them, and I'm just kind of jump, jumping in here. So it's basically position them, you're saying, to consent by the way that you position from the beginning. Let me give you a simple definition of manufactured consent. It's manipulating people into supporting products, services, causes, or candidates while thinking they're doing it out of their own free will. I was, uh, I'll never forget being in sales and I'll never forget they used the word manipulation. And I said, well, why would you use that? And the sense was the ability to manipulate you to get you what you already wanted. And I thought that that was so interesting. I thought it was, it really was. And, and, and people already want it, you know, they, they've already made that decision. Many times a salesperson is kind of like, I'm going to show you the route to get there. I, um, I looked at these three different pieces and I think that this might be something that you have a more in depth, um, in depth piece of it. And then that is that pulling people's strings logically seems very manipulative, but what are your thoughts on the marketing aspect of why people use those pieces of emotion, the dream, all of those things? and in, in integrity, being able to feel comfortable doing that. And I'll only bring this up probably one time, but I was in church one time and I, and I went up to uh, the pastor and I said, let me ask you a question. I said, is this, um, is this, is this a lot of truth and, or is there a part of a sales pitch that's in this? And his statement was both. What do you think about where people want to go? and giving them the path, but you know, you might not get there. And a lot of marketing, one of the greatest marketing for money is to put a Ferrari behind you. You could like it or not. You could hate the people, but that's the attraction. How do you look at integrity and not ask yourself in a logical standpoint, 
that if I have ethics and I have morals, that I'm sitting down and writing something to manipulate you and your emotions to trigger you to come to me? How do you, how do you take someone to feel comfortable doing that? And I've kind of worked with people on this, but I think that you have a really good deep dive and understanding of that. Maybe you could share a little bit about that. Sure. So the contrasting approach to manufactured consent is informed consent. That's a term that's mostly known about in the medical and psychological and legal fields where you have fiduciary responsibility to educate your client and serve your client's best interests. Now, ethical selling is the same thing. What ethical selling is is serving. It's matchmaking. And in order to do good matchmaking, what we have to do if we are selling is we have to understand what the prospect is actually looking for, even oftentimes before the prospect themselves are clear about what they're looking for. Mm -hmm. Because in taking a prospect through that journey of discovering what they didn't know they were looking for, that is a, a process that some people might call manipulation. Uh, I, for me, the word manipulation implies that I have an agenda to get you to want what I want you to want rather than my having an agenda to help you own what you already want but didn't fully understand how to get. To me, that's education, not manipulation. That's really good. And I think that you tie that in and say you know, again, I think I had, a, I was having a meeting earlier and this was all coming up. We were conversations about this. And so I kind of can bring it up. And you, you, I was saying that, you know, if you look at uh, religion and you look at these things and the ultimate thing I, I had to come to a personal conclusion was when you see somebody in a form of religion or so, and they're marketed to the solution of whatever it may be that your religion may be, the solution really is to remove you from pain. I think this is such a powerful conversation because there's a lot of limiting beliefs that people have when they're in business. And I think that a lot of people conflict um, in how they feel about how they make transactions. And I think that what a lot of what you're sharing is trying to get the root cause of you can still be in integrity by marketing, closing somebody, and then giving them a product and then delivering it. I think a lot of people think that integrity is in the delivery. Well, <laughs> the customer experience, the, the delivery experience, there is a huge amount of integrity in that. Mm -hmm. And you're right. The, the issue of integrity runs through the entire process. It starts with first contact and it goes all the way through supporting delighted customers in becoming ambassadors for what you're selling. I think that that's, um, let's, let's dive a little bit into that and in, in the integrity of why you would want those ambassadors. And, and when you look at ambassadors, um, you know, what people that don't know an ambassador is, it's basically someone that's speaking for you about what your service does uh, at, at a microphone, at a big, huge microphone level. But um, to get there, um, I think what you're sharing is that by doing those three things, doing them correctly, is where ambassadors are created. Does that sound right? Yes. 
Yes, by doing all of them correctly. And, you know, maybe before we talk more about the ambassador's piece, maybe it would be helpful if I illuminate another crucial piece around why entrepreneurs are reluctant to sell. Uh, and that has to do with a faulty definition of money. You know, uh, the the prevailing the the version of definite the version of money that we get taught in high school economics if we have an economics class in social studies or whatever is money is a medium of exchange and that definition of money is true but not useful it's true but incomplete because the, it begs the question of what gets exchanged all that money is is portions of our life energy in a converted form. All that is, say that again. All that money is, is portions of our life energy in a converted form. So from Everything the... Everything that you have done has come to this point. Yeah. yeah. So from the, from the seller's point of view, the seller has converted portions of their experience and expertise into a product or service that they are selling in order to convert their expertise into, which is a form of life energy, into the form of money. The buyer has done whatever they do in their life to convert portions of their life energy through their the work that they do that they get paid for into money so that they can use that converted life energy to buy certain things they want to buy or to uh, donate to causes or to multiply the life energy that they've turned into money through investments that they that they invest in so the reason this matters is because when we understand that money is simply portions of our life energy in a converted form, we have a way to understand what ethical capitalism is. Mm -hmm. Ethical capitalism is where the amount that I require for exchanging, for turning my life energy, my, ex my expertise into money through the things that I sell, the amount of money that I charge is a right match for the amount of money that you are have converted portions of your life energy into in order to utilize when there's a, a match between those two things we've got a reason to engage with each other if I'm selling something for a price that's greater than is integrous for you to purchase it for there's no harm and no shame and no fault on either side. You get to look for a resource that matches what you need that's being sold at a price you want to pay for it. That, that's integrous for the amount of life energy you have to invest in order to get that amount of money available to you through what you're paid. Uh, so when we understand money and capitalism in that way it opens the door to neutralizing the whole sales process because we're not trying to force anyone to do anything we're serving people by helping them understand whether there's a right match between what they need 
and what they're willing to pay and what we provide and what we are charging for it. It's just the right match or not. Yeah. And what comes to mind for me, and, and I think that I could stay in line, is that there's a statement that says that your income or how much money you make is a direct correlation by the difficulty or the amount of problems that you can solve. Uh, I think it's not quite, I don't quite see it that way. So I guess the, I the connection is the amount of need that I have to get it solved. Doesn't yeah, matter how simple correct. or complex. So, yeah. So you basically, it's, and I was looking at it like the energy that you have put into your work and you, the way that you position yourself in solving problems, that ultimately, if those are the problem solvers, the integrity is not going to have a problem because you are, you are literally solving the pain of somebody else's issue. Well, not just solving the pain, because that's solving pain is the removal of distress. That's a great beginning, and that's got value in and of itself. In the bigger picture, what hopefully we're doing is we're not only resolving, helping people resolve their pain, we're also helping them step into their best life, their best self. Mm. And that's different from resolving pain. The absence of pain is not the presence of a desired state. You know, the opposite of war isn't truce truce is the absence of war mm -hmm. the opposite of war is peace yeah. and if we get from a war or a conflict state to neutral to the absence of the conflict that's a great midpoint in seeing people but if we go all the way we take them from pain to absence of pain to presence of a desired state that replaces the pain you know, one reason that I like doing these podcasts is because we all have these ways that, and answers that we have, but on the journey, you can always kind of patch a little bit of somebody else on you, right? You can kind of add that person's perspective. And I think that you're doing an incredible job because this is your specialty. Even for me, I'm learning through this process as well. Um, and I think that that's just so valuable. I'm going to take a spin here. Sure. And I'm going to kind of change this into another conversation, which I think that would be interesting in integrity and human behavior and things. And it was back on November 15th, and you had written uh, something that has been coming up to, with a lot of people, and that is the metaverse is rapidly gathering momentum, folks. Best to stay informed about it so you can make wise decisions over the time about how you do and don't want to engage with it. How do you think... Yeah integrity is going to happen over the next, how do you see this happen over the next three, four, I don't even think it's going to take that long. I think it's going to be over the next two years. As we go into this more of the distance between us has less touch energy, which I think um, doing martial arts and fighting from my background, I know that there's a lot of truth in getting hit in the face. And I don't mean that in violence, please don't take that at anybody. But as we're closer to people, we have these natural things that we would do in integrity because, you know, it's the same, like I'm going to talk trash behind your back, but I won't say it to your face. How do you see integrity happening in this massive shift in the metaverse? And I also think it's awesome that you just, you know, you jump right in. I mean, this is brand new. You know, you've done a lot of learning in your life. And 
it's, it, you have this always learning mentality, which I think is super cool. So what do you think is, is this integrity is happening in our distance from each other? Right. Well, you see what the, what the metaverse does is it, it puts everything we've been talking about on steroids. So the, what the dark side of the metaverse metaverse is, is that it provides, um, ways to manipulate people, uh, to do manufactured consent even more effectively and even more subtly and even more um, s sinisterly, if I can invent a word. It also... We do that, we do that often. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it, it also gives us the opportunity to bring our level of consciousness up to the level it needs to be in order to utilize the blessings of innovations and technology like the metaverse for the the evolution and forwarding and elevation of humanity through uh through proper ethics you know einstein said it very well during his life decades and decades ago he said technology has advanced faster than our wisdom to be able to use it and so the challenge with the metaverse is to bring our wisdom up to speed so that our wisdom matches the power of the tools that the metaverse puts at our disposal. Uh, and there is a war. Make no mistake about it. There is a war that's been being waged for a long time uh, in, uh, in a way that is out of many people's conscious awareness. And the war is over whether we are going to allow ourselves to be turned into commodities, to be commoditized as chattel, or whether we are going to utilize the blessings of technology, innovations, and the metaverse, and things like that for... Uh, for elevating our self-responsibility, our freedom, our self-sovereignty, and our ability to serve each other more effectively. If we don't have that understanding that that's the ethical and moral challenge that we're faced with in this age, then we're not going to even be on the right playing field in terms of making decisions about which way we go. We're just going to be pulled along by the sinister among us who are trying to capitalize on these innovations for their own good while manipulating us uh, us into thinking that they're doing this for our good when that's not so yeah i think that um it's been an interesting thing because this is it's all about commerce i mean we can say whatever we want it's how you know how can i add to the bottom line and what are the things that we can do and there's there's some natural things that happen through this concept of the metaverse I think that, um, you know, one thing that integrity, I guess I would say is that when, and we kind of locked in on this one, I guess, because <laughs> what it was, but I think that it's like, how do we man, how are we seeing that? How do we manage that? I mean, you, you're, you're going to have people, I think it's a, if you have two types of people, I would say over the last 20 years, and you've had a lot of introverts that had their ability to spend time in computer programming. Not everything I'm saying is probably correct to everyone. Let me make sure that I say that. But ultimately, you know, certain types of people may be in the computer more. And those people that have been in there, their ability to now go out there and troll and do those things has to do with a sheet across their face. 
And the people that we are sitting out and saying that are out in the society actually having real life consequences of sitting in front of buddy, uh, in, 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 in front of each other and having those consequences, the people that maybe um, weren't in front of people are now able to use maybe the metaverse using a type of avatar to now put themselves. Do you think that it's going to take the people that understood more of that and decrease and make them wonder if they need to be more sinister? Or do you think it's going to take the people that are very introvert and, or see, that's not even English. If they're introverts, and they rise up because you might have somebody who's extremely insecure, but if they put on this mask, which is you know the the concept of having a different um, uh, a different avatar for yourself, people use those things all the time. Do you think that it's going to be more valuable to bring this part of the society up, or do you think that the actual leadership is these people and they're going to get confused and start falling down? What do you think about that? Well. As so, something that I didn't mention earlier is is that my doctorate is in both clinical psychology and organizational development psychology, and so that's why my career has been at the intersection of entrepreneurship, leadership, culture, um, society, all of those kinds of things. And in that context, what I've always been focused on is an integrative approach that is simultaneously top down and bottom up. So that people who are, for example, um, the, the people that you're characterizing as introverts, the, the opportunity of more distant forms of connection that, the, that cyberspace allows gives introverts opportunities for interaction that they might otherwise not feel as comfortable having. And they can either use those opportunities to create a false self, you know, a, a false avatar, or they can use those opportunities to learn how to express their authenticity in ways that are safer for them as people that are more solitary in their, in their orientation. Uh, at the same time, you've got leaders who are uh, trying to take advantage of people through trolling and uh, other propaganda techniques. And you have other leaders who are wanting to encourage people to elevate their self-sovereignty. And I think it's important for us to become much more sophisticated in being able to tell the difference between those two types of leaders so that we support the leaders who are nourishing our self-sovereignty and we disregard the leaders who are trying to diminish our self-sovereignty. What would be some examples, and let's not dive into a political answer, but non-political, who do you think some guys out there are maybe trying to do it right or trying? Uh, well, you know, there, there aren't today many politicians that are, are doing this well. I think there are some politicians, and I've known some, who, whose hearts are absolutely in the right place. I don't, I don't have 
an issue with their good intentions. But their skill set is lagging so far behind their good intentions that they're ineffective. I see where the where the pivots are in this are actually happening from the socially responsible business marketplace, which is now a three trillion dollar marketplace. Socially responsible businesses as a as an overall market is a three $3 trillion a year business. So finally, socially responsible businesses is coming onto the scene. And we're seeing, um, you know, these, these uh, innovative entrepreneurs rising up. Like it seems to me from our conversation that you're one of these folks who deeply values integrity-based business and it's it's people uh, entrepreneurs and and those who assist entrepreneurs like you who are leading the way into new territory uh, into very new territory uh, this is kind of connected with my next two books also by the way which I we can bring those up. touch on <laughs> yeah uh so we're recording this in december 2021 and in early 2022 the uh, my next two books will be available. We're in the process of setting the launch date as you and I are recording this right now. But the two books are called The Nimble Company, a proactive, socially responsible framework for driving sustained profits and growth in a chronically chaotic world. And the other is called The Nimble C-Suite. C-Suite, for those who are listening that aren't familiar with that, that's the executive suite in corporations and companies that are large enough so that they need a CEO and a chief operating officer and a chief financial officer, et cetera, et cetera. That's your executive suite. So the other book title is The Nimble C-Suite, How to Align the Diverse Strengths of Your Executive Team to Predictably Deliver Extraordinary Results in a Transformational Economy. Through those of us who are, are um, setting the, the tone of the transformational economy and socially responsible business uh, to the, to help businesses step into doing business in these kinds of ways it is inevitable that a new type of governmental leader is going to sh start showing up because there will be sufficient support for that kind of ethical yeah. integrious leader exactly. so that they can actually get voted into office I think Elon Musk is kind of one of those guys. I mean, obviously, he has to get down to the bottom line, but it, you know. So Elon Musk is a really good example of someone who I think is uh, has really good intentions in so many ways, mm -hmm. and because Elon Musk, by his own characterization, lives on the autism spectrum. You know, I, I was gonna. I was going to say that and I was trying to think in my bed, in my head, how do I politically, how do I actually say it? And I'm glad you said it because I think that there's a part of that. It's, it, it, go ahead. I think I was literally. Yeah. Thinking. <laughs> He, he recognizes this. This yeah. is not something I've decided about him. This is yeah. something that I have noted that he has said about himself. Correct. And because he lives on the autism spectrum, part of living on that spectrum, and this is something I know about because I come from an autistic family and I am myself a very high-functioning autistic, uh, is that 
in in having difficulty reading social cues, which is one of the challenges of people who live on the autism spectrum, mm-hmm. um, we we miss we miss it when we have unintended negative impacts on other people unless we know that that's a blind spot ours and we take extra steps to enhance our impact literacy uh so that's one challenge the other challenge uh, for those of us who live on the autism spectrum is that our internal creative world is far more engaging for us than the external world is and so when we're off in our own internal creative process we often don't know that we've left others behind and these are the these are two things that i think elon musk deals with i mean there have been times when he has said certain things publicly that have created a huge amount of blowback and that he's had to then go back and do damage control on Mm -hmm. i don't think that those things that he's done have been because he's a malicious or ill-intended person i think those are artifacts of his not fully having stepped into his growth edge as someone on the autistic spectrum i think that that's that lays it out. And I think it was, if you, if you watch the Saturday Night Live, he did probably the best part of it. You know, he obviously says, you know, I'm not tasting something like that, but he, he says, he goes, you guys sit around and you think I'm weird. He's like, what do you think? Of course I'm weird. I'm trying to take us to the moon or, you know, under those circumstances. Like, what do you think? Of course I'm weird. Like, I thought it was such a, a natural understanding of like, I've got to be a little weird because logically you're saying it can't be done. And I have to kind of be a little odd a little bit. And he recognizes his oddness. Yes. And, and he like yes. says, look, I know it's, it's weird. I know it's weird, but you know, he said, and he was in an interview and he said, you know, you're under this, you, you said this and you know, some words were said and his statement was like, yeah, there's a lot of words. And I was like, you know, he nails it. He goes, words don't mean it. I mean, what he was saying is like, yeah, a lot of people have words. Okay, you string those into a sentence, but that doesn't mean that they're right. And I think that it was so powerful for him to come out and just be, just be human. You know, he went on Joe Rogan and you can agree or you can't agree, but you know, he sat there, he's puffed, kind of smoked the weed. And, and later on his damage control was like, you can kind of tell I didn't even know what I was doing. Like he's, he's smart enough to know how the whole process would work. But really, at the end of the day, it really wasn't his thing, but he was being human. And I think that what he was trying to do in that scenario is that Joe Rogan was a guy that was just kind of a down-to-earth guy, and he was trying to meet him somehow in that place. And I think that there's some value in that. might not be right to some people, but I think that that was really kind of his play on that, you know? Yeah. You know, uh, Joe Rogan and and Elon Musk and... um... Simon Sinek and, um, you know, we could go down a whole long list of, uh, of these kinds of influencers who I think are very much in integrity with their mission, with their sense of purpose, and they are imperfect like all the rest of us. They have growth edges like all the rest of us. Uh, my, my sound bite around this is that leaders and entrepreneurs build businesses at the level of their self-development limitations despite their highest intentions and what separates one leader or entrepreneur from the next is not 
the fact that they're imperfect because that's all of us, every single human being. What separates one entrepreneur or leader from, from the others is their willingness to become awake about those gaps, about those self-development limitations, mm-hmm. and to fill them, not to not have them. The difference between success and not success is asleep versus awake. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, um, I always said, and this is, uh, it, it has to do with levels of um, things that you would do at different levels. And I've always said that what I should do is if I had a two-story house and my two-story home had my bedroom in the left and it had you know my office on the right or something like that. And I always said that as I walk up, I'd have a painting of God on the right facing my bedroom and then I would have Machiavelli facing my office. And it always kind of just kind of dawned on me. And I was kind of like Machiavelli's statement was I need to be able to teach princes how to run dynasties, not to keep this nice fluff, what people have. And I think that the question that I would have for you is we see people at higher levels making decisions. And when you look at leadership on a one-on-one basis, my emotion with you might be trying to solve your decision on that. People would look at somebody not having an integrity in business when they're trying to move the masses because the rules are different than the rules are at one-on-one. And so as just humans, how do we accept that different things happen at different levels and how do we not look at those as non-integrity or integrity situations? Great question. It's it's about right matching uh, it the need and the and the strategy it's always about right matching the uh, i was i was taken in hand decades ago when i was in in the process of getting my doctorate by one of my mentors one of my professors who was on the organizational development side of my training and he said to me david you you really need to be clear about something in order to make a decision about whether you're going to have organizational development as part of your career. I said to him, what's that? He said, the speed at which you can facilitate individual change is generally going to be much faster than the speed at which organizational change can occur. And unless you're, you have it in you to be patient with a longer time frame for organizational change than for individual change, you will get frustrated as an organizational development psychologist and you'll implode. You, w- you will fail because your impatience will sabotage whatever good you're trying to do. And so part of, part of the distinction has to do with time frame. Um, for change. The the other has to do with understanding systems dynamics. The way that individuals function is not exact, exactly the same as the way groups function. And even that's not entirely true because all of us, if we look at ourselves closely, we are not a single unified self. We are a community of self. You know, we have an inner critic. 
we have an inner protector. We have um, an inner child, perhaps. We have um, the uh, the outer leader. Uh, we have uh, we have different types of parts of us. So we're a community of self, and if we don't know that, then we're not going to know how to behave in an integrous way in ourselves. But the more we understand how we are a an internal family system, the more effective we can be at imp, uh, implementing and catalyzing positive change in outer systems, in groups, in companies, in cultures, in societies, in humanity. Do you think that's where kind of quantum physics comes in? Well, quantum physics comes in at all of these levels because at the quantum level, we can either, as an individual, we can either decide that we're going to make decisions um, separated from or divorced from or disconnected from collective wisdom that we could tap into, higher wisdom, spiritual wisdom, you know, the, the, um, from an ego state. And the, the same is true as a society. When you've got the cart um, you, you've got the, the tail wagging the dog in a society where the societal ego, the societal preconceptions are um, operating outside of a desire to connect with higher wisdom. You've got all kinds of societal problems, which are exactly what we're experiencing right now in healthcare, in governance, in the sociopathic end of capitalism. So I don't consider capitalism sociopathic, but the way capitalism is practiced by certain companies is profoundly sociopathic. Uh, we're seeing the, you know, this kind of ego play all over the world. And uh, I think this has to do with people not being clear about the, the pivot point that we are as humanity, because the, the species called Homo sapiens is over. We're entering a new species. I'm going to have you continue that, and I'm going to ask you. I'm going to come. I want. I want to jump into that, but I do want to do to address that one thing that I think has been difficult, and you can kind of elaborate on this. Is just because I think it jumps right into it. Is that our ability to stick into something long enough with such a fast pace is difficult to sit down for a minute and then solve the the the. Um, the the right in front of you problems because things are changing so fast and the new things are happening all the time if if i was a bricklayer i would go to work if i owned a company that was a concrete company and we built walls or whatever it be i would be able to just go do that position get really good at that position my subconscious would allow me to go be that that mason lay all those bricks and do all those things and since that's a subconscious stance that we have I don't have to think about how good I am at that. My next state is how do I treat my colleague? How do I now nurture the guy coming up? But one thing that I'm noticing over and over again, and I even, we just had it in this kind of conversation was that we just had a discussion about metaverse. In reality, we're only Facebook's 2011, did it really start to take its hold? So we've got 10 years of what the heck why people are still trying to catch up to say in business i would like to ask you for your email so when it comes to this sense of integrity do you think that this confusion 
of me trying to figure out my, like my job, all these different things, that that heightened frustration sits at like a seven out of 10 and that these frustrations don't allow us to kind of take a step back because our subconscious can't just allow us to do the motions without us thinking. You think that's part of why we're struggling with a sense of like, just not being able to set back and relax and be able to make those decisions. When, yes, when we're, when we are successfully propagandized by the sinister who are pulling strings, we have been trained to tolerate high levels of fear and a an orientation toward surviving survival when we are not manipulated by that we are not motivated by fear we are not controlled by fear we are motivated by love and we are not trying to survive we are devoted to thrival to thriving and that is an important distinction because the the momentum that exists now in a large part of the media and a large part of high-level influencers and uh, and leaders is all about the uh, the news cycle serving the objective of keeping people in high states of fear and arousal not i'm not talking about sexual arousal here i'm talking about dysfunctional stress arousal um and uh and uh with a desire to just figure out how to survive the day as long as we're operating from that mindset we will be controlled by forces outside of us rather than live in harmony with higher wisdom that lives inside of us that we can connect to at any time we want. I, uh, just personal side. I remember when, um, I don't e-commerce business. I decided to start another company and, uh, we were starting an SEO company or I was starting an SEO company and we were, what we, what we were doing, we were going out there and doing SEO and things like that. And there's a sense of failure that happens because the way that this not going to go deep into that, but basically trying to get things ranked and then you would see them collapse. And the emotional transitions that was going with me at the time, what, eight years ago or something like that, what was happening is I kept saying I didn't have my legs, meaning that every time that I would go and do this position, I couldn't find a repeatable answer that gave me enough validity that I was on the right path. It didn't allow me to say, when I go and do this job, you know, I know that for example, if you owned a car dealership or something like that, you know that the new model comes out in, in you know, September or whatever. It's going to drop in November. Okay, every year there's this repeated pattern. And what I found even with myself was that I had to kind of, I had to find that there was a lot of continual little failures that, can, that I had to allow in there that will allow me to even stabilize because all of those things just will always collapse. And I think technology does that to us a lot. What are your thoughts on kind of people that are running these businesses that are shifting so fast? Right. Uh, the, the skill set that is, um, is just beginning to be plumbed, be, uh, be uh, explored and, and elevated has to do with upheavals resilience and that's a shift in terms of 
the kind of roadmap one is looking for. If one is looking for a roadmap based on a static world where nothing changes, everything is repeatable and predictable from year to year to year, in today's age, that's going to be a faulty strategy because those roadmap, that type of roadmap has disappeared. Uh, you know, we have internal roadmaps around things that we're unconsciously competent about. And then we have other roadmaps internally around our growth edges, things that we're working to become consciously competent with. But with upheaval's resilience, the roadmap that we are operating from is a roadmap that has to do with how do we harvest blessings from the unexpected, uh, the undesired, and even the unacceptable. And that capacity to harvest gifts from the constant twists and turns in a society that is in the biggest consciousness upheaval in, as far as I can tell, the last 2,000 years uh, requires a uh, a, an orientation to developing a different kind of roadmap than the static roadmap you were referring to. It's got to be a dynamic roadmap. You know, I've been kind of going through this in my head for over the last year and a half and really trying to find out what that answer is. And I think that what is the root of it, and maybe you can follow along with, you know, this same statement, but basically is you're going to have to be able to create products and create offers more often that might not last as long and be okay with that. And so the actual uh, strength of an entrepreneur is his ability to find more problems and then make more offers because the offer will not last forever because the, because the piece, I mean, there's things about, I mean, how many people jump on Facebook ads and then all of a sudden they, I'm the man who's doing Facebook ads and then all of a sudden your pay, your cost per click goes through the roof, Facebook shuts you down, and you're trying to tell your wife or your husband or your family, you're like, I don't even know what's gonna happen next. And I think that this is something that people are doing. The only conclusion that I came as an entrepreneur is you gotta get back down to fundamentals and become a master at creating new offers because the human behavior is changing so quickly that the new pains or the transition or whatever, you know, as we talked about at the beginning of the podcast, those are shifting so fast. I don't think the core of us humans are changing at all. I, mean, I think we're, we're doing the same thing. You know, we're just not running from, you know, coyotes as much. We just have figured out how to put these things in front of us. What you're saying is spot on, and it, it ties back into what we were we were talking about a little while about uh, ago about time frames. So. When we're really solid about our vision and our mission and our values with at that level of things, we have something that is pretty evergreen. It's pretty timeless. It may not be immortal. We may refine and fine tune those things over time. But when we're clear about those things, the core of that endures over long periods of time. When we translate vision and mission and values into a specific product or service strategy is the next longer time frame so we may be able to employ a strategy that it will endure over a period of years but tactical implementation 
has to be able to pivot at a moment's notice. So somebody, for example, uh, to, to use your example, someone who uh, is um, a whiz, has become a wizard at, uh, at Facebook ads when Facebook ads were inexpensive, they tactically, they either have to pivot over into a high leveraged, newly emerging way of monetizing Facebook ads, or they need to pivot over into a different internet marketing strategy that has become leading edge today that wasn't even on the map a year ago. That That's tactical pivoting. Yeah. Uh, even with products, there are certain products that really are evergreen products, but the marketing messages that are uh, are utilized and even the delivery methods for those products or services those things do and have to change over time as market demand and and market problems problems in the marketplace continue to evolve so you know think about this time as a funnel we've got the more endure uh, more durable parts of our purpose and our vision that last over longer periods of time and then strategy a less long period of time but still a reasonable period of time and then tactics have a very short time frame and we have to be constantly evolving and pivoting tactically in terms of marketing and delivery methods i think that, that it's uh i think that once we get over our head that and the only thing that came to mind right now i don't know why but it was like the number two pencil we're all looking for the number two pencil that lasts for 45 50 years 70 years and it took the number two pencil where everybody's like i'm not we're gonna go to the pen now but that took forever i mean that was like the thing that stayed forever and i think that we are looking as a society for things that will ground us and i think that what you're sharing is so powerful because really at the end of the day the grounding is our ability to then transition internally as organizations we build the transition in is that and I think solo entrepreneurs yes. struggle with that because they, they don't have the resources to make those shifts as fast. Um, right. Well, the problem with being a solopreneur is that if you're the chief cook and bottle washer, uh, you you have placed the an upper ceiling on the amount that your business can grow. And that's okay if you're doing a lifestyle business, uh, then there's no problem with that. It's, it, it's all about informed consent again. Uh, so there's nothing inherently wrong about staying a solopreneur if it's aligned with your financial and lifestyle objectives. Uh, if if your objectives are grander than what a solopreneur can do on their own, then you've got to shift into being an entrepreneur and more of an orchestra conductor than the chief cook and bottle washer. Well, I could definitely talk to you all day, but I do want to make sure we go back to the transitions that you were talking about of the homeo sapien transitioning over. And I haven't dove into a lot of this and I, I had been speaking with some people and they were, you know, going, and I don't know if this is even it, so I might butcher it, I'd be way off, but there's people <laughs> talking about uh, the, the alpha male concept of people that are basically coming through and that there's more of this softness that is coming in. I'm not sure if I'm a buyer of that. You know, I think that there's always a sense of for me, it's like, that sounds great until the new 14 year old with testosterone decides they want to take over the world. And then that whole entire concept is gone. I always say, you know, people will want world peace until testosterone gets involved. So unless you're going to remove that, <laughs> unless you're going to remove that, 
the, the, the nuances of, of the youth have always been punk rock. It's always been that way. And so I think that there's, you know, I obviously went on a tangent of what I got from that, but what, what is it that you wanted to tap into? Because I'm, I'm interested in what that transition was to you Right. Well, let me, let me answer in two parts. The first part is directly related to what you were just talking about. The, the alpha male versus the softer approach, that is an attempt to articulate something that, in my opinion, doesn't quite hit the mark, even though the thing they're trying to talk about is absolutely crucial and needs to be talked about and needs to be addressed. What's happening as I see it, is that we're finally stepping from animal versions of masculine and feminine archetypes in all of us, the, the masculine energy and the feminine energy in all, in all human beings, stepping from the animal version of that to the divine version of that. There are basically, to soundbite it, there are two forms of love that all of us have access to and I believe all of us have a responsibility to become masterful with not one over the other the masculine consciousness form of love in all human beings is love through challenging people and the feminine consciousness form of love in all people is the form of love that is about nurturing when you have all challenge and no nurture you get alpha male, dominant, coercive, manipulative, shaming, controlling, toxicity. And when you get when you have all nurturance energy with no challenging energy, when you have uh, all feminine consciousness in a given human being and none of the masculine, you get entitlement, indulgence and victimization. They need each other in, uh, in, our, in ourselves. We need both in ourselves and with each other in order to be whole and complete. A 20th century theologian by the name of Reinhold Niebuhr said it really, really well as a soundbite that our job is to comfort the afflicted, that's nurturance love, and to afflict the comfortable and that's challenging love. Yeah. It's not one is better than the other, it's both and. The, the marriage of the divine masculine and the divine feminine forms of love are part of where humanity is, is evolving into, into this new species. So that's part one. Yeah, and I, and I think it's part two. Do you think, just to kind of add on it, do you think that that's where the word of people saying, I'm not angry, I'm just being stern. You think we've tried, we've been trying, like that terminology is like, we're trying to get through that. I'm not trying to be an ass, I'm just trying to be stern. And, and there's like, and there is a difference, you know, there is a difference. But do you think that that's like a natural humanity of trying subconsciously to try to break those walls? Do you think that that's... One of my online courses is on anger literacy and effectiveness, and it ties into what you're talking about right now. Uh, you know, it, people's understanding of what anger is, is very, very distorted generally. When people think of anger, they think of rape, pillage, destroy kind of stuff. And all that anger is, all that anger is, if it's pure, true anger, is none of that. It's simply no or ouch that's it 
Okay. Anger is no or ouch. Anger? I, I gotta get my head around it. No or ouch. Okay, give me something so I can... Sure. Yeah. It's when people get angry, it's because they realize that they have a boundary that they either didn't know they had or they thought they could get away with ignoring. And as a result of not knowing they had the boundary or trying to ignore the boundary, they reached a point of agitation where the no comes out in an angry way. Or when somebody literally or figuratively inadvertently steps on my foot, it registers as an ouch, regardless of whether they intended to step on it or not. The ouch is going to come out as stop it. Yeah. Right? That's pure anger. No or ouch, which is half of a boundary. The other half of boundaries is yes and yum. What does fit and what does feel good and what does serve. Right? So, you know, you know, when people are saying I'm not angry, I'm being stern. Or here's another variation, by the way, Jason. I'm not angry. I'm being passionate. <laughs> Sometimes they're actually right. Sometimes mm -hmm. they're being passionate or being stern and they're misunderstood as being angry because of the way they're expressing that and because of the preconceptions of the people they're doing that around because it's co, you know, it's co-created. Um, and sometimes they are saying, I'm not angry, I'm passionate, or I'm not angry, I'm stern because they're confused about the difference and they actually are angry. Mm -hmm. Right? Varies. It varies. I think um, we could talk forever. This has been incredible, David. I think that uh, you bring a, a nuance to the conversation. I think you bring knowledge and wisdom to people. Um, and I think that you've articulated the psychology as well as the process um, that even moving forward, that people, as you know, we talk about what the future looks like, kind of what the passes look like. How do people uh, get your new book? I'm going to go ahead and repeat it myself so that uh, I hope that uh, I get on and I can uh, purchase the book when you get it. I'll be one of the first ones if you send me a link. It's The Nimble Company and it's The Nimble C-Suite. And can you give us an idea of when those are going to be coming out? Yes. Uh, and for your sake, I've, I've typed in the subtitle and subtitle of, of both books into the chat box for your reference. Sure. We expect my co-author and I, uh, uh, my co-author on these two books is Mark S.A. Smith, who is uh, another one of these marvelous thought leaders and innovators. Uh, and Mark and I are wrapping up the manuscript for both books this month being December 2021, we're fast tracking the publication, the publishing of both of these books. So the books could be out possibly as soon as late January of 2022. And if not, then February or at the latest early March. But quarter I'm one. thinking, what's that? We'll give you quarter one. <laughs> quarter one. It'll be Q1 of 2022 that uh, that the launch will happen for both of those books. David, it's been a blessing, and I do appreciate you coming on and giving your knowledge. You're going to help a lot of people through this. Uh, how do they find you? The simplest way to find me and to be in contact with me is through my main website, which is drgruder.com. That's D-R-G-R-U-D-E-R.com. It's 
amazing. I appreciate you being on the Moved Entrepreneur Podcast. Everybody's going to enjoy this. And again, thank you very much. We'll close it out. Thanks, man. If you like this episode, make sure you smash the like button and subscribe to the YouTube channel. Just like Nike is to athletes, Moved is to entrepreneurs.